Welcome to Global Policy Next Generation podcast. I'm Amna Kalim, Deputy Editor of Next Generation, and this is the first in the series of our new podcast called Conference Dispatches, where we will go to conferences and then bring you an overview. Today we are in the beautiful surroundings of the University of Leeds Music School. We are in the Centenary Hall. Usually this hall is full of melodious tunes of world-class musicians, but today it was full of grim assessments of Brexit and the challenges it poses for the North. I'm talking to Global Policy's online editor, Tom Kirk, who's going to give you an overview of today's conference. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks, Amna. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm going to give you a quick overview of the conference. The conference was all day, so I'm going to rush through this uh, as we're now in refreshments and having wine, and I want to enjoy that. Uh, But yeah, some of it's still fresh in my memory, so I'm just going to pick my highlights from each of the panels. Um, As you introduced, the conference was part of Global Policy North's outputs and events. Global Policy North is a consortium of Northern-based universities uh, and academics who are interested in global policy challenges and possible solutions to them. So today the topic was the challenge posed by Brexit for the North, and most of the speakers decided to focus on post-Brexit life in the North and what it may mean. All of them accepted that Brexit is going to happen, there was no talk of a second referendum or a stall of reverse of Brexit. So the the concentration tended to be on what kind of Brexit is going to happen. And the first panel of the day was the education panel. There was a mix of speakers from schools and from higher education. As I said, all of them uh, were focused on what kind of Brexit we're going to have, and, and all of them seem to favour a soft Brexit. They were all very one worried also about funding, especially in higher education, saying that uh, a lot of research money comes from Europe, uh, and what's the situation going to be afterwards in terms of uh, those kinds of grants, particularly uh, uh, the member from Durham University, who was particularly concerned about Durham's reputation as a leader in physics, just stated that a lot of the grants for physics research comes from the EU. That said, there was also a feeling amongst everyone that universities have a, have a real role to play post-Brexit in getting the message out globally that Britain is open for investment and open for business and attracting talent and innovation, especially leading, uh, leading researchers to British universities. On the school side of things, the, the conversation seemed to focus around what role will schools have in building children's value system in a post-Brexit Britain, particularly in terms of our identity as Europeans, even though we might not be a member of the EU uh, anymore. And there was also a need to keep pipelines open, open for teachers uh, in schools. So after that, we had a quick refreshment and we went into the two keynote speeches of the day. The first was by Hilary Benn MP. He's a MP for the Labour Party, very famous as being opposed to Brexit and also being at local horns for the leadership of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. And he's also the chair of the Select Committee for Exiting the EU. Correct, yeah. As you could probably imagine, he gave quite a uh, cookie-cutter speech, usual roles about uh, what kind of uh, post-settlement he'd like to see, uh, talking about potentially staying within the custom union in some shape or form. There was nothing really controversial about his speech. However, he did choose to focus on uh, examples of how northern businesses in particular have built their models around uh, no tariffs and, and free trade and frictionless movement with the EU and that, and that because we have no certainty on what Brexit will look like 
those businesses have no certainty on what they're going to what the the lay of the land is going to be for them he kept reiterating this uh, as the major concern when he speaks to people on the ground in the north after him uh, Lord Jim O'Neill spoke. Jim O'Neill's a uh, previous head of chief economist, I believe, for Goldman Sachs, and he's famous for coining the phrase BRICS. Jim kind of took a very alternative stance to the rest of the participants and said, look, Brexit is not the biggest thing facing the UK and especially not the North at the moment. Far more important are two things. One, future economic shocks, which he didn't really expand upon, but he made the point that things like the financial crisis in 2009 did far or had far greater effect on GDP than uh, all of the worst predictions for Brexit would and far more of an immediate effect for GDP. And then secondly, which he did focus on, he he, he made the point that productivity in the UK or uh, is is an all-time low, especially when it comes to the North. The North is far less productive uh, than the South, and that's the big issue facing the North. How do we face that those productivity challenges? Jim uh, is associated with the Northern Powerhouse, so this is something he chose to talk about at length quite a lot. He is not uh, a sceptic of the idea. Some people say that it's been tarnished for George Osborne. Jim actually takes the opposite view. His, but his message was that northern northerners and especially young northerners have to own the idea and take it forward it, it needs to be uh, it needs to evolve away from its kind of origins or association with Westminster so then we had a lunch which was great and we came back for an afternoon health panel the health panel uh, was concerned about two main things the first was immigration and the flow of staff to the NHS. It was pointed out that uh, fewer nurses are signing up from Eastern Europe and the European Union in general to come work in the NHS. And post-Brexit, if we have this kind of anti-immigration fever and controls, how are we then going to allow or keep that stream that the NHS needs of, of skilled uh, medical professionals? This was backed up with some interesting statistics that showed the different, broke down the different regions of the UK and how much they rely on foreign uh, medical professionals um, and generally there, there was no easy answers but it, there, there was a need there was a clear need to change the visa system at the same time there was the issue of politics one of the speakers did the classic the NHS is a political football and lamented this idea while another of the speakers more academic speakers were like look public health is about politics it's about who gets what and it's unashamedly needs to be talked in, in, about in political terms. The main takeaway from that, the kind of political dialogue around the NHS and Brexit was that there is no incentive for the incumbent government in the UK to reverse current trends of poor provision um, and a lack of money, especially in northern uh, NHS practices. I, 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 although it wasn't said, the assumption there was that people in the north don't generally vote for the for the incumbent government, so why would they put more money into the services or reverse the, the, the trends in services provision that we're seeing? Do you think um, there were some themes emerging today in this dialogue that we don't see in the popular discourse on Brexit, uh, especially with a focus on the North, because a lot of the news is London-centric? Uh, yeah, the, the theme that came through fully was devolution. Um, uh, we don't see, I would say, in, in, the, in the media around Brexit, the issue of the North's desire for devolution. 
uh, especially to smooth out some of the shocks or uncertainty that Brexit's causing. All of the speakers across all of the panels really saw devolution of, as a way of combating the uncertainty that Westminster with its uh, four-year term cycles and with thing, referendums like Brexit pose. The, uh, the general argument was, look, if we have devolved government uh, and devolved powers, we can create a safe space for investors who can see five, 10, 15-year plans and feel that they can invest in the North, whether that be infrastructure or energy or health services. Um, so yeah, that was one of the, the, the things that really struck out strongly uh, across the entire day that I wasn't aware of being an avid reader of newspapers. Anyway, if I can carry on, and we're talking about the investment and industry panel, which actually this sets up nicely. One of the great things that came out of that, which again isn't is is something that you don't see in in the media, is that the way both the North and the South's economies are structured are pretty similar. Both of them have around seventy to eighty percent of their economy coming from the services. Uh, with the rest coming from manufacturing and industry. This kind of goes against or busts the myth somewhat that the North is an industrial powerhouse or, or relies on industry. Further busting that myth, it was shown that the Northeast in particular has a lot of financial services. So what does this all mean? This means that post-Brexit, the North is going to suffer, if you like, or is going to feel the same kinds of effects that the South is. That's something that isn't talked about in, 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 in the media discourse. Instead, we get this kind of line that the North is an industrial place and that it's going to suffer disproportionately post-Brexit, which maybe is not true. Because we associate services with financial services and City of London, but um, I think it was interesting. It was Honor Kehoe who said that Huddersfield is home to a lot of um, services. So it's interesting when we think of post-Brexit shocks or impact, then the North will suffer, but maybe for the same reason as London would? Yeah, exactly. Maybe for the same reason, but it also speaks that we have to be more kind of nuanced than saying the North and the South. Within the North and the South, there's clearly regions that have different economic makeups and are going to suffer in different ways. So Huddersfield for example, if that does have a lot of services compared to somewhere else in the north, that's going to need its own policy to, uh, solutions and tensions, which, you know, that's the, uh, something that really isn't touched upon in the media. Uh, moving on to the the last panel of the day, which in some ways was the most interesting, and I didn't suspect it to be. It was on energy and infrastructure. There was the very usual kind of uh, anger amongst the northern participants that uh, the the north is left out of infrastructure, or its infrastructure, the infrastructure it's getting from central government is inappropriate. The big one being HS2. Uh, people were like, "Why do we need a north to south train line? All of that's going to do is increase the current brain drain we see um, and investment drain we see of people either moving to the south or investment going to the south from the north." Uh, Instead, people wanted the east-west train line. Uh, the big argument being is why post-Brexit are countries like China going to invest in the north if there isn't even the infrastructure in place to, to support their investment? It doesn't. It just sends out the wrong message globally. However, the other big thing that came out from the energy and infrastructure panel was that, like, yes, over the last 10, 20 years, the UK has consistently, especially the north, been touted as a possible place or a possible leader of sustainable energy solutions, particularly around industry. And frankly, across the board, everyone says that the UK has failed to, to seize these opportunities. One of the panellists pointed out that it's not so much that UK central government has prevented uh, the growth of the sustainable energy industry. It's more a fact that people in the north or northern companies have somehow waited for permission. And that it's time now that 
that they no longer look to Westminster to lead and start seizing these opportunities themselves. And there's actually uh, an interesting tidbit that many northern companies are providing services to renewable industries, particularly in the north of Europe uh, and particularly around wind power. So that was something I wasn't expecting and it was really good to hear. And lastly, on the energy and infrastructure panel, there was uh, a general feeling that devolution again is is needed if these kinds of opportunities are going to be seized going forward. Again, to smooth out the uncertainty that central governments cause and the, and the factitious politics in central government causes and to signal to investors that local government can set a safe investment environment and plan for the long term. And yeah, that was a, that was about it. And that, that, that was my take. So overall, a, a revealing conference uh, with some of the, the same old lamentations and, and, and worries, but also uh, much more nuanced than we get in the, in the mainstream media. That's great. Thank you for uh, such a comprehensive summary of today's uh, conference. It was a very long day indeed with all these panels. But I think the thing that I found most interesting was different panels on education, health, investment, energy, which shows that Brexit is not just one thing that will impact the economy. The impact will be multi-sectoral and it will you know, be felt in different parts of uh, governance. Uh, and also the fact that devolution came up as a common theme during um, all these different uh, panels shows that maybe there's something for researchers to look out for, and this needs further development. Um, so thank you very much uh, for this, Tom. And uh, thank you for listening to Global Policy Next Generation podcast. If you would like to um, feature on our podcast, or if you know someone who'd be interested, please send us an email on next.generation at global-policy.com. Thank you.